we are going to finish up chapter one here tonight. Uh, maybe we'll get into chapter two. We'll just kind of see how we are for time. Uh, we were kind of getting an introduction to Revelation and as well as just kind of seeing Jesus tonight, we're going to see how he is going to be described. Now, this is going to be a very important thing because he's setting us up for the message that's going to be given to the seven churches. And so we talked about last week a little bit, just touched on it at the end, about these seven churches and how they are in a certain order. And he is going to start here at Ephesus, go to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So he's going in a circle. And they, we talked about how they are about... 50 miles apart, fairly evenly spaced, not exactly, but uh, there's definitely order to what's happening here. Now, as we begin here in chapter 12, or chapter 1, verse 12, what I want you to note is we're just going to kind of look at the qualities or the characteristics that are used to describe Yeshua here. But we're being set up because each one of these characteristics is going to be important because when we get to the seven churches, he's going to visit them again. And like one church is going to get one of those characteristics. Another church will get another one of those characteristics. He'll say to the church of, from the one who is, or who holds the seven stars in his hand, or uh, who has the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Whatever that characteristic is, is going to be very applicable to the, what that church is going through. So, for example, one of the churches is being persecuted, and they are facing death every day. Death is a very real thing to them. And so the characteristic that will be attached to that church is from the one who died but yet lives. Almost like an encouragement to say, listen... If you die, you're still going to live. It's okay. You don't need to fear death. All right? So that's just one example. But that's why as we go through these, I want you to ponder what it means. Not just the biblical you know, connection to it, but what does it mean? How does that apply to people going through certain situations? Maybe how does it apply to your life as well? And the other thing is, What's happening here is when John is going to turn, he is going to see Yeshua or Yahweh or both, because again, this whole Trinity thing, we can't wrap our minds around that. God is one. And what is described as Yeshua, we can find Old Testament passages fitting that to Yahweh, the God of creation, Elohim. And so you can't really separate this and think, oh, okay, God's there and Jesus is over here. There, there's a trinity, a, a unity that it, it's beyond my understanding, but nonetheless we see it. And so verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a gold band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the shining sun shining in its strength. So when John turns to see this person, Yeshua, Yahweh, he sees seven lampstands. Now, put yourself in the shoes of John or anybody at this time period reading this. Something's going to pop in your mind right away, right? Seven lampstands, oh, a menorah, the temple. You're going to think of that menorah right away. Very familiar. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. But we're going to see, if you jump ahead to verse 20, it tells you exactly what these lampstands are. So we don't need to wonder. It says that these lampstands are the churches. The seven churches we're about to read and, and get descriptions of. We'll talk more about what those represent and all of that when we get to that next week. But for now, I want you to see that 
many people say revelation can't be understood, but if it's meant to be symbolic, watch in Revelation how many times it will tell you what it means. If it's a symbol, he'll tell you what it means. So we see lampstands. I think that he really saw lampstands, but he says these are, these are a picture of, they're representing the seven churches. We're going to see that a number of times in Scripture, so you don't have to wonder. You don't have to read too much into it. But that also means when something is said and he doesn't say that it's symbolic, you might want to take it on the more literal side. Not that it doesn't have a symbol to it, but it's probably more literal. Okay, um, what we're going to see here, imagine this, that you are watching People's Court on TV, and as you do, before they come in, you're watching the judge getting dressed in her chambers, and you're seeing her stand before the mirror, or him, or whoever it is. My wife likes uh, Judge Marilyn Mion, so it just automatically goes to a female here, but getting ready, dressed up, and, and just kind of looking, yeah, okay, I'm all ready to go. That's what's happening here. You are getting a description of a judge, and that judge is going to enter the courtroom and sit down here very soon. But this is what's being described. A courtroom is being prepared. And so what we want to do is look at each one of these pieces that I have highlighted tonight to kind of show you because it's going to be important when you look at those churches. So I won't follow them in exact order here, but uh, the two-edged sword, I'm going to visit, revisit it again, but some see this as since the sword is the word of God, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword, sharp enough to penetrate between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Some see this as being the two aspects of the word of God, the law and the gospel. Maybe. Uh, some see Old Testament, New Testament, maybe, Old Covenant, New Covenant, but I want to caution you in making too broad of a separation with that, because whether it be old or new, it's God's Word. Whether it be old or new, it's still valid. Whether it be law or gospel, they're both important. The law is not gone, they're both still there. And so don't kind of make it an old, new, like one is obsolete and one is no longer. This sword coming out of his mouth is in the present. It's going to be used. None of it is invalid. All I know for sure is it's the word of God, because that's what Hebrews 4.12 tells me, as well as other things. And so here's just maybe a picture. It's the same verses that I have there, so I won't read it, but... Just a, a picture maybe to visualize. Who knows what it was like. This picture isn't my favorite simply because I think those lampstands were menorahs probably because that's what we see in the temple. But nonetheless, to give you a visual of here is the Lord, Yahweh, Yeshua, both of them standing there with stars in his hand, seven stars, seven lampstands, you're going to see that those stars represent the angels of the churches. We'll talk about what that means later. Okay, a gold sash, hair like white, uh, uh, long robe down to his feet. Um, you can kind of see a sword coming out of his mouth here. Brilliance shining from him, the Shekinah glory of God. Now, when we look at the Shekinah glory, this brilliance that comes from God, that is a result of his glory. That is pure holiness. I've said before, you know, we always say, oh, God, show me your glory. And, and we kind of expect to, you know, see some amazing miracle. But when Moses asked for the glory of God, remember, he has this big wind and there's this earthquake and all of these things are going on, but God wasn't in it. And then there was this still small voice. And then he says, I'm going to show you my glory. And he puts his hand in front of Moses' face so that he can't see fully. And he goes by him, shielding him until he gets behind him. And then he gets to see his backside. But as he does this, God is saying his qualities and his characteristics. And I probably should have had that verse up here. But we see he, he, he literally says these things. 
Actually, I'm mixing two stories. Elijah here, too, when, is when the storm and all that. But he basically proclaims, I am compassionate. I am long-suffering. I'm... God's glory is, in essence, who he is. The glory isn't the light. The light is the result of his glory. Okay? The other thing is, I think of, you've heard me talk about this in Genesis. I do not believe that they were naked when they were in the Garden of Eden, like we typically see in pictures. So, like before the fall. Before the fall, we always have this picture, they were walking around buck naked and nobody cared. Adam and Eve just, I don't think that's what was happening. Because the Bible says in Isaiah and other places, God clothes himself with light as with a garment. God isn't naked. He's clothed with light as with a garment. His glory, the result of holiness, is this brilliant Shekinah or Shekinah glory of God. Adam and Eve were created in his image. And therefore, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, I think they were clothed with glory. And it wasn't until the fall came and that glory departed, then they became aware of their nakedness. Now, I'm not just theorizing things here. The Bible even says in the Hebrew, there's two words for naked being used. One word before the fall, another word after the fall. One is arom and the other is erom. One means to be partly covered. The other means to be absolutely naked. And the form used before the fall is to be partly covered. Therefore, Adam and Eve were partly covered. But with what? It wasn't clothing. It wasn't fig leaves. It had to have been the very nature of who they were created in. The image, the glory of God. And when sin came, that left, and now they were completely naked. And so that's this brilliance coming from him. That is the holiness of God the result of his very nature. And so that's what you're seeing here. Now, in preparation for this, I mean, I've been studying Revelation for years and years, obviously, but I thought, you know, after I wrote that book, I thought I, I, there's got to be stuff out there I'm missing. I, I don't want to just rely on my book and the things that I've learned in the past because... We're never going to learn everything there is to learn. And so I began searching through, and I'm telling you, I went through hours and hours and hours of just listening to this chapter alone, of chapter one, trying to find some new insights in Scripture about the Scripture. And you know, I, all I could find is one after another is people basically applying this to us. Now, I'm not saying that you can't do that. I'm not saying it's wrong. What I'm saying is, is we're, we're selling ourselves short and we're missing out when all we do is look at this and what it means for us. And, and what I mean by that, like his hair is white like wool, and well, that might represent wisdom, and therefore, you know, we, uh, in our old age, we should be gaining in wisdom, and we should be a light to those around us, and, I, you know, whatever. I'm just making stuff up now. My point is, is if we apply everything to us, which again, it's okay, but you're going to miss out. This isn't about you. It's about Jesus, Yeshua. A revelation of Yeshua is what this says. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, that's what this book is about. And so what you want to be doing as we go through these is looking at what does this mean about him? Who, what does this tell me about him? Who is he? And what is that for me? But this isn't about you. It's about him. Okay, so keep that in mind as well. Because I firmly believe that if all I do here is teach you revelation and how it fits in there and don't give you any applications to your life, well, you know, now this week I want you to go home and I want your characteristics to be important to people around you. You know, I, I could make up analogies all day long. While that might be fine, I think you're going to miss out, as I said. And so I want you, if I just teach the word, I am convinced that the Holy Spirit 
will give you the application you need for your life. I don't need to give it to you. And it might be different for every single one of you here. You might find an application that the Spirit will give you. Okay? Again, Please don't say, you know, that Brian's saying that, you know, pastors shouldn't do that. No, it's okay to do that. I'm just saying don't stop there. We need to study Scripture for what it's about. Scripture. It's about Him, God. So, um, the golden lampstands, as I said, are menorahs. And like I said, they would have automatically thought that. So I have here a picture of the lampstand. I did mention it last week, but I wanted to show you the picture here. We know that even the lampstand, at least in the temple, was a picture of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Here he's saying that these lampstands are the churches. And you say, well, how is that? Well, what are we as a church? We are to be the Word of God going out to the world. And so it still fits, even though Scripture tells us over and over outside of Revelation that the menorah is representation of the Word of God, that Jesus is the light of the world, you need to realize that Yeshua now lives in you. And therefore you are a light to the world. We could look at all kinds of things, you know, uh, talking about a light on the hill and you know, uh, that type of thing as well. But that word is in you, and so you are the church. Now, we're going to talk about seven specific churches here, but nonetheless, there is application biblically that that's, it's speaking to you, even though it may be this specific church or that specific church, it's to the church, the body of Christ. Now, seven aspects I mentioned last week, again, just a picture of it from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, where there are seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. And we see those in the branches here in the menorah. So I'm not going to go through it again, but just wanted to give you a visual. The other thing is, what we have just read is not new. You know, a lot of people, as I said last week, you read Revelation, we can't understand it. Well, then throw out Daniel. Throw out Ezekiel, Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, Jeremiah, Exodus. Throw it all out because that's what you're reading. Let me show you what I'm talking about. When Daniel, in chapter 7 here, he has a vision, and it is the exact same thing John has. Look, I watched till thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Keep in mind that idea of a judge about ready to take his seat. It says, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. That's exactly what Revelation just told us. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousands and thousands ministered to him, ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. The books we're going to see shortly are going to be, I think, in part anyway, the seals, where the seven seals will be broken and unraveled. Now, there are other aspects that we'll see here in Daniel, but for now, that describe what I've shown you, but I don't want to read the whole chapter right now for that. But this is what you're going to see. He sees the same basic thing. Basically, a, a, an authority figure, a father figure here, Whereas in the New Testament here in Revelation, we often assign it to just Yeshua, Jesus. But in Daniel, it's Yahweh that he's seeing, ultimately. And we're seeing that it is this courtroom. A courtroom means somebody's about to get judged. And that is what's going to happen here. And so that's what you're reading. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Let's look here. In verse 14 of Revelation, it talks about his hair being white like wool. We saw it in Daniel. White as snow. Look what Proverbs 20, verse 29 says. The glory of young men is their strength, and the splendor of old men is their gray head or beard. <laughs> Proverbs 16, verse 31 says, The silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. Leviticus 19, 
Verse 32, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. And so this white hair, just kind of looking at Scripture, is telling us something about the character and nature of God. Okay, Not necessarily the character of us. I've known some white-haired people that are fools because they deny God. All right, But when we see it here, it's saying that he is to be worthy of honor. He is worthy of praise. He is the ancient of days. He is wise. It is his splendor. And so that's the picture that we're seeing. The voice that Revelation describes here is the voice of many waters is what it sounded like. Well, Daniel 10.6, backing up from what I just uh, showed you before it says his body was like beryl his face like the appearance of lightning like we saw in revelation his eyes like torches of fire his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude so god's voice is powerful and i could give you many many scriptures that talk about this but just a couple ezekiel 40 verse 2 Behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters. Similar, and the earth shone with his glory. Psalm 29, verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And so what we're seeing is power. So much so that when we look at Exodus, and we'll look at this later, that when the Ten Commandments were given and Yahweh is coming down on the mountain, his voice thundered, so much so that everybody was terrified. And they basically shrunk back and said, don't let him speak to us anymore. When God speaks, his very voice, and one of the Psalms it says it, it breaks the cedars, it, 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 gives, it causes the deer to give birth. I mean, all of these things, his voice is power it has ultimate authority when he speaks you can't answer job when god spoke to him there was a thunderstorm coming and job was undone when god spoke to him it's like you know he was complaining he was complaining and it's like i have nothing to say when god speaks you will have nothing to say to defend yourself that is we can look as well as the golden sash around his waist and a robe that goes down to his feet. Again, if you were back there in this period and you heard this, your brain would automatically go somewhere. Temple. Who wears a robe all the way down to his feet that's white and has a golden sash? The priests wore that. Very clearly. Right? Um. It depended on the time, but most all priests did that. But then there was a certain day of the year when a lot of that was taken off on the Day of Atonement. Then they stripped themselves to the white. But here's what we see the priest looking like. Gold sash around their waist and a white robe. Now we know, we've studied Hebrews. It says that Yeshua is our great high priest. You see, you had priests, then you had the high priest. That's all you had until Yeshua. Then you had the great high priest. And his priesthood was better than that of the Levitical Aaronic priests. And so we're seeing Yeshua is being described here as a son of man. You're going to see him described as a king coming with authority and power. And you see him described as a priest as well. Just like we see that he fulfilled all three offices in one, and nobody ever did that throughout all of history. You were either a king or a priest. Now, it's weird, David, we see David sometimes, because he is a Christ figure, had those attributes of king and priest. David wore the ephod. He he wore a linen ephod. That's, That's strange. That's weird. But that's because Scripture is trying to point us to something, that he is a type of Christ. But... Normally, there's, you, don't, you don't have these multiple offices. You're either a king, you're a priest, 
or you're a prophet. But you're not any, you're not all of those. You're not both of them. But here we see the word of God coming out. He's a prophet as well. So all these roles are being fulfilled in Yeshua. And that's what's being described as he's coming here. He has every right to judge. So what he's going to do, you're kind of getting his, his resume or um, qualifications that he has the right to do what he's about to do. The one coming, you don't question. He is the judge, and he is worthy in, uh, of that. Um, so, again, just further proof, this is God. The sword that comes out of his, well, let me read these verses first. Isaiah 11, verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, faithfulness the belt of his waist. The, the belt is a picture of righteousness. Well, he is the ultimate of righteousness. Daniel 10, 5, I lifted my eyes and looked, and before, behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold. So what Revelation is describing isn't anything new. Seeing the same person. Revelation 1.16 talks uh, about the sharp sword. We kind of touched on that, but let me give you a little bit more. Uh, I read Hebrews 4.12 for you here before, but let's look at Revelation 2.16. It says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Like I said, one of these attributes we're seeing in chapter 1, you're going to see in chapter 2 and 3 assigned to a churches. And so here in chapter 2, he's speaking to one of the churches and he says, repent or else I'm going to judge you. And how is he going to do it? By the word. When God judges you guys, it will be by the word. It doesn't flow real well in modern day Christianity to say that God is going to judge you by the Ten Commandments. But that's exactly the standard of how he is going to judge you. Now, I realize we can't keep those, and that's why we need to have the blood of Jesus covering us, because, therefore, when it comes to judgment day, I have fulfilled the Ten Commandments through Yeshua. Yet we also realize that I'm not covered in Yeshua if I have a willing attitude of saying, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, so now let me go break all the commandments and live in an ungodly way. Then you have lied to yourself and the blood of Jesus is not covering you. So there's a balance here that, yes, the, the Ten Commandments aren't saving you by what you do, but the Ten Commandments save you by what Jesus, Yeshua, did and by you recognizing that he did that and having a heart for them. So, repent or else the word is going to judge you. That sword will devour you. Revelation 19, towards the end of the book, it says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Again, this is going to be when like judgment is coming for the world. And it's the same thing that's going to judge, the word of God. So when we live in a world that is in deconstructing the churches, deconstructing doctrine and tearing everything apart, saying we got to rebuild. I listened to, I don't know if that was the one you sent or not, but it was a good one talking about deconstruction. And the whole idea of deconstruction in the churches today is this, that we have a social construct in the church rather than a divine institution. That church is simply a man-made idea of social constructs rather than the command and, and uh, organization or whatever of God. And when we think that the church is a man-made institution, then yeah, it's going to be filled with all kinds of things that probably should be torn down. But that's not what the church is. The church is built upon the foundation of Yeshua and his word. These deconstructionists, 
their standard of what truth is isn't the word. It's social values, it's emotional ideas, you know, all of these things like BLM and, and critical race theory. It's worldliness. It's worldliness, yep. Yeah. So that is not how God is going to judge the world. When God judges, it'll be by the word. And we should use that same standard to judge one another. Right? The word does that. Isaiah 49, 2. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. So we too, in some ways, have a sword coming out of our mouth when we stand properly by judging through the word of God. Not culture, not denominational doctrines, but by the word. I find it interesting that John knew Yeshua very well. He knew Jesus really well. He had never seen Jesus like this. A lot of the things that I was listening to what I would hear is a cultural explanation of the scriptures. For example, as we'll get into some things later, well, John is writing because in the culture of that day, they would understand it this way or that way or whatever. Okay? And we have to be careful with that because John has no part of his personality being input into this. This is a vision, and he is writing exactly what he saw. Whether he saw that, oh, that's Jesus, he wasn't going to put in, I saw Jesus like this, because that wasn't the vision. He is recording verbatim what the vision is. And that's why I said, like on our first week, this is very unique to the New Testament, because in the other parts of the New Testament, you have people giving their story, and you can see their personalities, and you can see some of those type of things in there, even though it's inspired. But... This is like Old Testament prophets. Daniel, the same thing. He saw, <coughs> I'm, I know he knew that was God, but he doesn't say, I saw God. He says what he was given and no more. And I think that's a good lesson for us. Sometimes we need to speak the word and no more. Don't put your interpretation into it. Let the word do its job. And I think that's what John is doing here. So, um, anyway, I think it's good for us to have that view of God that all John knew was this humble servant. I mean, he knew Yeshua in the flesh. He's now seeing Yeshua as reigning king. This is exactly what um, uh, Jamie Walden talks about. He's not coming back as this guy on a cross, this humble suffering servant. He's coming back as a reigning king with the sword coming out of his mouth with power and might. Somebody that when you see him, you're going to fall and tremble. That's the kind of God that's coming back and that's what John is seeing. This is the, this is the, the picture of Yahweh you need in your minds right now. Not looking back, but looking ahead. Yes, I understand we remember what he's done for us, but don't leave him on the cross. Get him off of that cross. Put him on this horse. Put him with power and might and use that in your everyday life because we walk around very timidly as if we serve this little you know, guy on the cross who's is suffering and you know, maybe he'll help me. Maybe. No, we're serving a God who has all power, might, and majesty. And we need to walk like that. So verse 16 talks about his countenance being bright. We talked about the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, like the sword probably right there, and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Not only does the word of God, but the word is so pure, the word is so holy, that just being in the presence of that holiness will consume you. And that is why we see God covering Elijah and Moses comes down the mountain glowing because even the, the, this unholy body of mine in the flesh, I have, a, I have the Holy Spirit in me. I am a righteous saint, but I have a bad roommate 
of the flesh. And this flesh, in the presence of the brightness of God, cannot stand. All right, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. But, the, I mean, I can't put into words the definition of holiness. We can't stand in holiness in the flesh. That's why you would die if you saw God without Yeshua. That's why in the Old Testament, that curtain was there to protect you. You get into that Ark of the Covenant, you're a dead man. But then when he dies on the cross, that curtain is torn, and you now have access to the throne room of God, to the most holy place. It's like, wow, that's not a small gift. That's not something to take lightly. That's not something to take for granted either. And that's what we're seeing with this brightness coming from him. Habakkuk 3, 4, his brightness was, that, was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand, and there his power was hidden. So, uh, just some other scriptures that will show that from the Old Testament as well. And there are many, many more, even in, uh, we could show you, but just to give you that this isn't new. Verses 14 and 15, he has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass. Well, we saw this already in Daniel here, this first part, but uh, I've got a little extra here in regards to the eyes piercing the soul. His feet are going to trample. It's a judgment. Bronze in Scripture is often used as judgment. Uh, Daniel's dream, we see you know, the bronze, the ruling, the authority, the power, same type of thing. Psalm 11 verse 4 says, His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. His eyes are like flames of fire. They will pierce your soul. His eyes see everything. You watching pornography in the, in the quiet of your own home, in the privacy of your own home, you out there working and nobody's there and things don't go well, so a bleepity bleep bleep. God's watching and he sees it. You go and start complaining off on your own, whatever it is, God sees it. We all do it myself too. I, I, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm right there. My point is, is don't fool yourself into thinking that you're getting away with it. Because he sees. His eyes burn through and see all. Hebrews 4.13, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Even your thoughts. He knows them. We can fool one another and make you think that I'm just this really nice guy and, you know, whatever. But God knows when I have hatred in my heart. God knows when I have jealousy or bitterness or pride or any of those things. You can't hide it. And that's what we're seeing here. He sees everything, and because he knows, he knows what's in the heart of man, when he's going to judge, it will be just. You can't say, that's unfair. No. He's worthy. He has the qualifications to be the judge. Verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. And there is a lot in here. But first of all, I want you to understand, here is John. You want to talk about washing somebody's feet. Wow. I mean, John. And John, when he is in the presence of holiness, what happens to him? Falls as if he's dead. Don't kid yourself. Just because you have Yeshua in you. Oh, that was in the Old Testament. No. This is in the New Testament. Right now, if the Lord appeared in this room, I am telling you, we would all fall. If you remember the dream that I told you that I had, that's the one thing that probably was the most impressive thing on me, was as soon as he came, 
I dropped to my knees. I didn't think about it. I didn't make a conscious effort. I just dropped and I began to worship. And there was nothing mental about it, nothing planned, nothing that I had to think about. It was just natural, the worship and the falling. And I think that's the way it's going to be. Do you remember when the soldiers are coming to arrest Jesus? And he says, I am. I am he. Boom. The Bible mentions it, but it doesn't say anything really about it. I mean, if I was one of those soldiers, I mean, what, did my knees just give out? What, what happened here? That's what's going to happen. Balaam fell to his knees, right? Saul was knocked off of his donkey. Moses in Exodus 3, 6 falls down. Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 3 falls down. Every time, whether old or new, this is the God I mean, if that doesn't put, okay, yes, we are serving a holy God, but yet we walk around in our every day-to-day life as if we're the holy ones. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I pray at night. You know, I watch porn, but that's okay. I'm a Christian. Right? Holiness. We have to, we have to grasp this, and that's what this is trying to, to do in words. He laid his right hand on me. This is the only thing... And this is what happens all the time. You know, like uh, in one case, is it Ezekiel or I can't remember who, he touches his lips. Or is that Isaiah? I think that's Isaiah, isn't it? He touches his lips so that he can speak, uh, all kinds of things. But the right hand, go do a concordant search on the right hand. It is a picture of Yeshua, Jesus, all throughout the Old Testament. And so... I'm going to give you some verses in a minute, so I'm going to circle back to that, but just take note. That's why I have it underlined here. But when that right hand touches you, it's that power, that's that authority, that's the might of the right hand of God that gives you peace. And he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I mean, that alone, I don't think we can really fully understand. He is eternal. He was before creation. Because he's eternal, always. There's no beginning, no end. Remember when we talked about Melchizedek? He had no beginning, no end, no genealogy, no mother, no father. He is the first and the last. There is no other. I am he who lives. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? He is the God of Israel. He is. That's why he is I am. Remember Yeshua, he even says that. He goes, I am the God of Abraham, to the Pharisees. He says, I, I live. God's, Abraham saw me. And they're like, what? How could he see you? Because he is. He's eternal. He says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. One of the things you're going to recognize as we go through this book of Revelation is Satan is going to mimic everything. Don't miss this idea. I was dead, but I'm alive. Satan, remember there's this beast. It's going to be as though he was slain, and then he's going to come back. I mean, everything Satan mimics. Morning star, Satan's called the morning star. Jesus is called the morning star. All right, he wants to ascend to the throne, ascend above the tops of the clouds. He's going to speak boastfully. I mean, all kinds of things. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Well, this is, I could go on a whole message just on this alone, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. I'll just give you a, a, a little touch of it. Um, he has the keys of Hades and death. Don't miss both. Hades, that's hell and death. Do you remember the message that he goes to Caesarea Philippi, way north in the area of Dan? Now this is where it could get a whole new message, but where we get into the watchers of Genesis 6-4, where we hear about the sons of God married the daughters of men and these giants roam the earth, the offspring of this unnatural 
supernatural and natural union become these giants. Well, the book of Enoch, which we'll discuss later, talks about these angels coming down on Mount Hermon. And this is where all of this takes place. And so throughout Scripture, we see Mount Bashan, Mount Hermon, kind of a, a comparison of Mount Zion. Satan mimics everything. God has Mount Zion. The devil has Mount Hermon. And this is traced throughout the Old Testament. So there's kind of a little battle thing that goes there. And when Yeshua goes there, it is here at Mount Hermon that he takes the disciples and he says, well, I can't tell you he was right there at Mount Hermon, at the cave that's in this mountain, but I think he probably was. All I know is that he was at that place where Mount Hermon is, where this cave is. Today, you can go there and there's a cave that goes deep, 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 deep into the earth and there's a river, a stream that comes out of it. And for centuries upon centuries, the devil has been worshipped there in many different forms and ways and they've got uh, old altars and things like that that are there at this cave. I should have put a picture up here for you. It was called the gates of hell. It was believed that this is where these evil spirits would come out. I think that may have actually been cor correct. I don't know. It is here that Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail. I think he was probably standing there and saying, even the gates of hell will not prevail. Again, that's what he's saying. I have overcome. The gates of hell cannot stand against this. And that's why it's important here that he's saying, I have the keys of hell. This ought to give you encouragement that not only do you not need to fear death, you don't need to fear life. And the devil going to get you right now. He holds the keys to Hades and the gates of hell. I don't care how many giants or Nephilim or transhumanism uh, kind of things that we talk about today that freak everybody out. You don't need to worry about that. The gates of hell have no power over you. He holds the keys to this stuff. So who cares? It has nothing to do with you. The gates of hell and death, you don't need to be afraid of. Okay, like I said, we could talk the whole lesson just on the gates of hell and these Nephilim and you know what's going on with that, but I don't think we need to focus on that. This is kind of going down that rabbit trail a little bit. When he goes and preaches to the spirits who are in prison who disobeyed long ago in the days of Noah, who disobeyed at that time, Second Peter talks about this, who is he preaching to? In my mind, I always kind of thought, all of those people who disobeyed, the human beings who disobeyed in the days of Noah. But it's strange, why does he say he preached to the spirits who disobeyed in the days of Noah. What about who disobeyed from Noah all the way up to Jesus coming? I kind of think that when he went and he preached to the spirits in prison, he's not talking about the human beings who died. He's talking about the Nephilim, the watchers, those that were put into Taurus and uh, locked up or bound. And we're going to see this later in Revelation about these demons or spirits that are bound. But anyway, that's powerful that he has the keys of Hades and death. That's supposed to give you comfort. And it shows his authority over not just the earth, not just the Christians, but even over Russia and Ukraine right now. Right? We have comfort in that. Um, Hades also, interestingly, is the Greek god who held the power of death. So he's kind of, you might even say, just again, over Satan, over the demons. Let me get back into that right hand of God then, just to show you some things here. Exodus 15, verse 6. Just to, I'm going to show you just a number of verses. I literally could give you 50 verses here. 
Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. I should have done a search, but I don't believe there's any reference to God's left hand. Psalm 16, verse 11, You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 18, your right hand has held me up. He says, the shield of your salvation, your right hand. I mean, this is a picture of Jesus there. Psalm 20, verse 6, with the saving strength of his right hand. Psalm 48, verse 10, your right hand is full of righteousness. When my dad was dying, he was all doped up with... uh, What's the stuff you get when you get cancer? All that, uh, morphine. And he said, I've got a leftist hand and a righteous hand. And I thought, a little profound truth in that. Okay. You see, there is something about this right hand, and yet it, every word is so important here in Revelation, in any of Scripture, that it was his right hand that he touched him with to take away that fear. He could have just said, he touched me, but touched me with his right hand. There's a reason. Uh, Isaiah 48. Uh, did I do 41.10? Uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or Isaiah 48.13, my right hand has stretched out the heavens, even at creation. Side note here, just for a creation scientific note, everybody wants to say, that, you know, how could this earth be only a few thousand years old? We've got starlight millions of light years away. It would take millions of years for that light to reach us. No, it wouldn't. There's, a no, there, there's four different explanations I could give you, but the one I like is right here in the Bible. When God created, he didn't create things millions of light years away. He created everything close. And then he stretches out the heavens. There are 12 verses in the Bible that say that when he created, he stretched the heavens out. So now I see why we see the red shift of light that they use as evidence of the Big Bang. Red shift of light is things moving away from us, right? Moving towards the red end of the spectrum. So they say, oh, Big Bang, everything's moving away. No, you're seeing evidence of exactly what the scripture said. God stretched out the heavens, okay? And so it's like a balloon. You put two dots on it before you blow it up. Now blow it up, stretch it out. Those dots move further apart. So when he created, things were close. He stretches them out, and now they're millions of light years away. But they weren't at creation. All right? So anyway, that's just side note. All right, verse 19. He says, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. That is important because he has just given you an outline of the book of Revelation right there. John is going to write what he has seen. That's what we're reading right now, chapter 1. We're about to finish up the very first part, the introduction of Revelation, what he has seen. Then it says, what is now? I believe that is going to be chapters 2 and 3 when we read about the churches that were there during the time of John. All seven of these churches. And then, and what will happen. That, I believe, is chapters 4 through chapters 22, to the end of the book. Now, there are some questions that could come in there uh, as far as interpretation, as far as when is what will be, when does it begin. Is it at the churches, or maybe after the, or, you know, before the churches, whatever. You know, the way I read it, I think it is after the churches what will be. But what is now is the time of the churches. If it's not, then what is the what is now? If it's not the churches. Okay, so to me it just makes, if I just take the logical straightforward reading of it, the what is has to be the churches. Another reason that I think that is if you just look ahead at chapter 4 verse 1. After we finish the churches, what's the very next phrase? It says, after this. After this I looked. Some translations maybe will say, then I looked. But it is, it's after this. So 4.1 would say, after these things, well, after what things? 
that which is. And that must be then the beginning of what is to come. So it even seems to be naturally divided up that way. All right, verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven angels or the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. No mystery there anymore. He tells us exactly what it is. Now, some are going to say that these angels of the churches, because the Greek word there is angelos, it's this, that word can be used as messenger, like a human messenger. So they say these are the pastors of the church. Maybe, but I don't think so. I don't think so for a couple of reasons. Just one, the role that we see them doing. Uh, number two, we see that this same word is going to be used 67 times in the book of Revelation alone. Same exact Greek word. 56 of the 67 times that it is going to be used, it refers without any doubt, angels, heavenly angels. Three times, it's going to be fallen angels, Satan or his minions. And so, out of all the New Testament that this is used, there are only four times that this word is used to be a human messenger. Most often, it's angelic. And I just don't see the, the context of this making this to be a pastor. So, you, you know, you, you just think about that as we go, but I think it's angelic. The Jews believed that everybody has an angel. Every single person has a guardian angel. Yeah. <laughs> You're hers? <laughs> yeah. I kind of tend to think that there could be some truth to that. Um, there are some writings that would kind of indicate it. We even see in the New Testament, do you remember that when Peter was arrested, they're all back home praying for him. Peter is miraculously delivered out of prison. He goes and knocks on the door. They're praying. A woman goes and knocks and opens the door. Peter slams the door in his face. I love this story. Slams the door in his face and goes back and says, Guys, Peter's at the door. And what do they say? Nonsense, woman. It's his angel. That's what they thought it was. Because they believed that your angel looks just like you. Now, I don't know. I'm just telling you that that's what they believed. We see that idea in Scripture. And I could give you story upon story of people even that I know or people that I know who have heard stories where there have been people who have appeared that look exactly like them. Uh, I know Cindy Uden, she was a teacher that when I was a principal there at a Christian school. And she said one, they would run, her and her sister would run every single day. And one day her sister came in and said, I'm not feeling good today, so let's not run. So she didn't do that. Well, they get up in the morning and she said, you feeling better? And she said, I'm fine. How are you? And she goes, what do you mean? Well, you came in and said that you weren't feeling good. And I said, no, you came in and said that I wasn't feeling good. Well, that morning there was an accident right where they were always at at that time every day and they would have been killed. Okay. I could give you many stories. Uh, a professor of mine at college said that, um, I don't know if it was his buddy or him, I think it was a friend of his, went during Vietnam or something, <clears throat> he was on his last tour and they were all going out for something, uh, some, some battle, and somebody comes and says, you've got to get back in, you've got a phone call or something like that, and he goes back in and there was no phone call, the, the, he says, I can't, I'm about He says, I'm taking him. And he took in that guy's place. He went in to take the phone call. There was no phone call, and their whole platoon was killed. Okay? I, I don't know. All I'm saying is we have examples, and I mean hundreds of examples that we could say that that happens. I tend to think that it's true. We need to understand, guys, we live in a spiritual world. This is not reality. What you're about to see is these seven churches, I, I believe that these are going to represent, there are real churches, but they're going to represent 
time periods leading up to the present. That each church has a characteristic, okay? Uh, kind of like if you look at Washington, D.C. today. Washington, D.C. is basically known for murder, right? I mean, it's just, it's violence. California, homosexuality, right? Florida, idiots, right? I mean, <laughs> you can kind of pick cities and see there's a general, you know, uh, characteristic of it. This is what I believe the churches are going to do. And so I'm going to close with this, just showing you that as we look at these seven churches, setting you up for next week, every single church has order and patterns to it. The first thing is you're going to see an introduction to the church of Ephesus, to the church of Smyrna, to the church of Philadelphia. Then there's going to be a characteristic that we just described here today. From the, or these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand. Then there's going to be a statement of knowledge, like, I know your deeds, that you are this and you are that. And then there's going to be an admonition or a warning, something like, you know, I'm glad you do this, or yet I hold this against you. And then there's going to be a second coming predicted of it. If you don't repent, I'm going to do this. Or if you hold firm, I'm going to give you this. Every one of these churches. Then, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And a blessing. To him who overcomes, I'm going to give a white stone or whatever. This is the pattern for every single seven church. Seven churches. All right? Now, the other pattern that I want you to see is this. It's like birth pains. It's going to get faster and faster. Now, this is the best I could do in a short slide, but I just did math. These are just made-up numbers, so don't take this as, as doctrine or anything. But seven churches, let's say that those seven churches equal 343 hours worth of time. That means the seven seals, because the seven seals are going to take place during the period of the seventh church. So my green line there is only representing the last church, the seventh church. Within the time period of that seventh church, you will have seven seals. And that's why I have seven little blue sections, all in the one seven. During the period of that seventh seal, you will have seven trumpets that take place, which is why you have seven smaller little pink ones. And during the seventh trumpet, you are going to have seven vials that are blown, which is why you have those seven little dots all within that last pink one. So you can see that things are going to get progressively faster. So as an analogy, if the seventh church only is 343 hours, the seven seals will basically only be 49 hours. And then the trumpets would only be seven hours and then the vials would only be one hour. Again, only an analogy. But I want you to see that. The second thing I want you to see as we go through these churches, and this is so important, is there is a pattern of four, two, one. Whether we look at the seals, the trumpets, the vials, or all of history, you can divide it up into the first four will follow a theme. The next two are going to follow another theme. And the last one is all by itself. For example, let me show you this. Here are the, the seven seals. The, the first four are all horses. White, red, black, and pale. Then it switches themes. The next two, you're going to see a scene in heaven. It's a heavenly idea, not earthly. And then the sun, moon, and stars, again, heavenly, are going to fall. So the first four follow a theme, then the next two, and then the last one, the last seal, is the beginning of the seven trumpets. All seven trumpets are going to take place in that uh, seventh seal. Four, two, one. You go to the trumpets, same thing. The first four, a third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of the freshwater, a third of the heavens, a third, a third, a third, a third. Then it switches themes, and you're going to have Satan's kingdom basically being judged scorpions and these million, two million horsemen, changes themes. And then the vials all by themselves, within the vials, all seven 
of the, or I'm sorry, within the, the seventh uh, trumpet, the seven vials take place. The vials, the same thing. All the earth, all the sea, all the fresh water, all the heavens, and then it switches to the Satan's kingdom again, and then it is finished. This pattern is seen throughout all the sevens. Like, for example, I believe the earth is about 6,000 years old right now. Four, two, one. 4,000 years, what happened after 4,000 years of history? Jesus comes. 2,000 years of New Testament history, different theme. And then, a thousand year millennial reign or there still remains a Sabbath rest for all God's people. Four, two, one. That is a pattern that we will see. We'll talk about that more as we go but it's important. One other thing is you'll notice that I have underlined after the sixth one. And in the notes that I gave you before, this is going to be there, and I'll, maybe you can kind of I'll point that out later. The reason that is there is because there is a commercial break between the sixth and the seventh one all the time. <laughs> You're going to be reading about this, you know, all these wicked things going on, and then it just completely changes themes, starts talking about something else. After it's done with that, then it gets to the seventh trumpet. Talked about six of them. Now you go a whole chapter of something else. Now I'll get back to the seventh trumpet. I want you to see, I also think that's the way all of history is going to be. 4,000 years old, 2,000 new. And before the last, our seventh day rest, there's going to be a commercial break this tribulation period, much of what we're going to be seeing talked about. And so it's just an interesting pattern that is clear in Revelation. It's clear in many places in Scripture, and it may be clear in what we live out. All right? So I'm not going to go over this tonight. Uh, Mark sent me something that I think is worth having. I'm going to probably print it out and then give it to you. But, um, yeah, you wouldn't be able to read it here anyway. So I'm going to print it out and give it to you. So with that, we're going to close. Um, hopefully you've gotten a good foundation. The introduction of Revelation is over. And from here on, you're really going to start being, getting to see things come to pieces and order come out of it. But right now, you just saw the judge standing in front of the mirror getting ready. And now he's about to come and, and take his seat. So, yeah. All right, let's pray.